we're actually going to spend the first segment of today's show starting at least discussing uh, gun violence, gun control efforts in New York. We've seen Governor Cuomo, who perhaps of any issue area has his strongest record on gun control measures. We've seen him really come out strong in response to the recent spate of shootings around the country. He's been all over the TV and radio airwaves talking about gun control, talking about New York as a model. He's challenging presidential candidates on the Democratic side to uh, pledge to basically enact the agenda that New York has enacted. And so that's been interesting to see Cuomo sort of jump out there on an issue where he he has a lengthy record of of gun control reforms. And so in moments, we're going to be uh, joined by State Senator Michael Gennaris, the deputy leader of the Senate Democratic Conference, who has been a, a gun control advocate. One of his gun control bills was passed this year, signed into law recently by the governor. So we'll touch on some of that with Senator Gennaris, but we have other things to discuss with him as well. And then in the second half of the show, we'll have on Liz Gaines, who's the executive director of the Osborne Association, one of the foremost prison reentry and uh, an ex-offender advocacy groups in the city and state, probably the country, to talk about some of the interesting issues involved with the decarceration in New York State and the way that that is affecting prison infrastructure um, in some interesting and maybe counterintuitive ways. We'll get her opinions and thoughts on that, highlighting some of the issues that um, we focus a lot on Rikers and justifiably so here in the city of jail where some people are incarcerated post-conviction, but the state prison system still has about 50,000 people in it um, and is going through a lot of very interesting changes that are less transparent just because of its location. So and the Osborne, conversation to have. the Osborne Association and others are pushing back against the potential closure of a prison that's in Manhattan, a right. state prison. So that'll be very interesting to, to talk with her about. But for the first part of the show, uh, let's talk with State Senator Michael Gennaris. He's the deputy leader of the Senate Democratic uh, Conference. He also leads the Senate Democrats campaign uh, committee arm and is helped uh, was the architect or partial architect of the Senate Democrats taking over the majority in sweeping fashion last year that led to a huge amount of bills moving through both Democratic majorities of the legislature and being signed by the governor, including several gun control measures, which is how we'll start off with Senator Generis. And Senator Generis, welcome back to Max and Murphy on WBAI. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me back. Uh, thanks for joining us. So let's start on on the broader uh, gun control picture in New York. We've seen Governor Cuomo really out there the last few days pushing basically the New York uh, gun control agenda as a national agenda. What are your what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think he's right. Uh, we have done incredible work in New York, uh, particularly since we've taken the majority in the Senate to make New York's gun laws among the strongest and safest in the nation, including some that I myself wrote and I'm very proud of. We just enacted a law, for example, to make the uh, background check period 30 days instead of three. Most people don't know this, but when up until this law was changed, uh, if a background check was not completed in three days, the gun was authorized to be given to the person without the background check being completed, which is absolutely insane, because if a background check takes that long, that means there's something wrong uh, that they are reviewing. So that was a problem in the Charleston uh, uh, mass shooting that occurred uh, a couple of years back. We closed that loophole here in New York. Of course, we did the red flag law. Uh, we have a, a series of laws in New York now that that uh, that make it uh, very difficult to um, uh, uh, have a mass shooting occur in New York. Not that it's impossible, because we don't control the laws in other states. And that's that's another thing we're trying to grapple with. 
which is why what the governor is saying uh, should occur across the country is right on. And and one of the things at play actually dates back to the 2013 SAFE Act, which which took very aggressive measures and actually made its way through in bipartisan fashion um, through the the legislature at that time, and that dealt. Uh, significantly with the types of assault weapons um, that we see used in a lot of these a lot of these mass shootings but those those are not you know it wasn't law that they had to be turned in so as you say it's not necessarily impossible for something like that to happen in New York but uh, several measures have been taken to to make it more difficult yeah and I would say to the extent we do have risk in New York it, it involves more uh, the case of similar to what happened in California recently where someone obtains a gun, legally in another state and just transports it across the state lines uh, to a state that's more restrictive, like a California, like in New York. And so that's, we actually passed a bill in the Senate this year to require quarterly reporting by DCJS of the origin of guns that are involved in crimes in New York uh, to help us shine a light on that part of the problem and bring some pressure to bear on other states that are much more lax about uh, about their, their gun laws. So there was uh, some blowback on uh, on social media a few days back when, uh, of course, there was the incident at Walmart, um, and Walmart was out there tweeting its uh, concern and condolences, and a lot of people responded, great, well, why don't you stop selling guns? Uh, because it is very easy to obtain these guns in other parts of the country. Um, and so we, we have done great work in New York on this issue. Uh, the governor is absolutely right that uh, other states and, indeed, the federal government should take notice and, uh, and do something about this, um, and hopefully we'll see some progress. We're on with Michael Gennaris, Senator from Queens, and if you want to call and ask a question, the number is 212-209-2877. So, Senator, you started to go down this road. I'm curious. We have done a lot in New York State, and obviously a lot of the problem does come from over the state borders. Is there more that can be done legislatively here, or is this really now in federal hands in terms of meaningful steps to reduce risk? We're always looking for ways to make things better. the momentum behind a red flag law, for example, uh, was fairly recent, only within the last couple of years, and we were able to get that done uh, this year. And so if there's, uh, if there's opportunities to make things stronger and better, even uh, within our state laws, we should absolutely take them. The proposal I just mentioned that would require reporting of, uh, of, the, of gun origins that are involved in crimes uh, has yet to be enacted. So that's something we can continue to work on and, and get done in the future. But uh, the overarching problem is a national one. We have a federal government that is captive to the NRA, refuses to uh, take measures to make uh, make the country safer. We are the worst country uh, in the world as it relates to being sensible and restrictive about firearms. Uh, and I think the uh, given that we had babies and children gunned down in uh, in grade school, and and yet the NRA continues to hold sway over Congress and keep them from doing anything about it, I think the answer is going to be uh, electoral. And hopefully in 2020, people will realize that if they want the kind of change that, that would make them safer, we've got to have a different group of elected officials. Uh, one more on the on the gun front, for me at least, and then we'll maybe move on to some other topics. Um, I, I want to mention for listeners, we're not even touching on all of the gun new gun laws that have been passed over the last, really a lot of them this year, but also even last year there was a law to make sure that 
people who've been convicted of different domestic uh, violence offenses were no longer allowed to keep their guns in New York. Uh, I mentioned the SAFE Act that goes back to 2013, and this year there were roughly half a dozen uh, gun control bills. You mentioned, Senator Generis, the the red flag bill that allows the petitioning of, of judges to have guns removed from homes of people exhibiting uh, dangerous behavior, uh, your bill on extending the background check, and, and there's others as well. Um, I wanted to ask you about something that hasn't been done, uh, and that's these these databases. There's these um, ammunition and, and pistol permit databases that were supposed to be part of the SAFE Act and haven't been enacted. Do you know, is that something of concern to the Senate uh, Democratic Conference, to you, that, that those haven't been um, executed by uh, the executive branch? Yeah, it sure is. It's, it's a little bit of a convoluted backstory, but that was part of the original set. Like the ammunition database was actually my legislation from back then as well. It was incorporated into the SAFE Act and passed. And uh, because at the time the Republicans controlled the Senate, there was this strange memorandum that um, the executive and the Senate leader at the time entered into um, that said that they will withhold implementing that database. Well, Senate leader is a different leader now than was the case back then. Um, the excuse we got at the time was that the um, mechanics of implementing such a database were not yet in place, but now it's been several years. I believe California is already at the point of doing something similar, so we should absolutely get uh, get with it and, and implement a law that uh, is enacted in New York State and has yet to be implemented. That wasn't something that came up this past session, though, as far as you know? Well, it's, al- it's already the law, <laughs> and the problem is there's this agreement that was reached with the previous Senate majority, which uh, obviously holds uh, no sway any longer. And so it's really up to um, uh, the executive and executive agencies to to put in place the uh, regulations needed to implement it. You uh, referenced that there's a new Senate leader now, obviously an entirely new Senate, and that led to a very interesting and productive spring session for the legislature. A lot of issues came out of that. One of them was the commission that will uh, potentially alter the state's campaign finance system. Their recommendations are due in December, uh, and obviously then the legislature has a a sort of unique uh, framework in which to react. What are you expecting out of that process? What do you want to see, and and how do you think you and your colleagues will will deal with it when those uh, recommendations are put forward? Um, Well, I'm hopeful that the commission is aggressive and and sets an ambitious uh, uh, public financing system that uh, will open up the process. You look at the city system versus the state system, and they are incredibly different. Um, the city does, in fact, have a robust public matching program in place. The state does not. Uh, our limits at the state level are very high, uh, and it allows the continued influence of big dollars to uh, um, impact our democracy. Uh, that's not what I want. It's not what a lot of folks want. We have set up this commission in the absence of an agreement on specific legislation. We have established this commission that is going to produce um, uh, a report by December that um, will go into effect uh, shortly thereafter. Um, I'm hopeful that the appointees will will be very aggressive in their recommendations. I'm confident that the um, uh, Senate appointees um, have the right frame of mind, but That's two out of nine, so we have to make sure that there's enough people um, who feel the same way when uh, when the time comes. Now, that being said, the legislature always has the ability to to make things better and to 
to change the recommendations if we're not happy with them. So there will be an opportunity to make improvements if the recommendations are not uh, sufficient. This was an issue where the Senate Democrats, your conference, seemed uh, significantly more aligned with Governor Cuomo than with the Assembly Democrats. Is that fair to, to say that there was a lot more hesitation on the Assembly side on this issue around campaign finance reform and taking sort of more aggressive measures to lower campaign contributions and uh, create a public uh, financing system? I'm, I'm, I'm not in a position to characterize uh, what the Assembly wants to do. I know there's a, a number of reformers in the Assembly that that want to see progress as well. I, I could speak on behalf of the Senate. We, we are anxious to see reform in the area of campaign financing. And um, I'm willing to withhold judgment until we see what this commission produces before I say whether that was a success or failure. So speaking of 2020 and the legislative agenda for for next year, what do you think is on it? What do you think the your priorities are in terms of likelihood? What do you expect will uh, will be dealt with, and how much will the uh, the election, national and state, uh, either fuel those discussions or, you know, suck oxygen out of the room. I mean, I, I, I'm assuming we're not going to have quite as productive a session as we did this past year just because this was kind of a record setter. But what what do we have to look forward to? You're, you're right about that. This was uh, an incredibly historic session, the likes of which I don't know if... Uh anyone will ever see again, but we, we didn't get everything done, and, and so we still have a lot to do. Just so you know, um, we had Senators Kruger and Myrie on to discuss all, all the accomplishments, so we don't need to go through them with you. We're, we're looking ahead with you. Well, thank you, <laughs> but I so enjoy talking about all the great things yes. we did, but I'll, I'll leave it. But I'll they gave you all the credit. They said it was all down to you, <laughs> they so they, yeah, they, they had you covered on that. And they, yeah. well, they, we all did great work. It's a great new majority. Uh, yeah, what's um, up next? But, but look, we, we did get a, a lot cleared off the plate, but there were some things we did not get done. We did not get uh, marijuana legalization done uh, the way I would have liked. We did we did decriminalize it, but we did not set up a process to um, uh, to allow for recreational use that will yield significant tax revenues for the state as well as uh, creating more freedoms uh, throughout the state. Uh, we did not deal with um, uh, additional criminal justice reforms. We did some incredibly significant work on bail reform that I'm proud of as, as the author of, uh, of the original bill. Uh, we did great work that Senator Bailey did on discovery and uh, and speedy trial, and but we didn't we didn't reform solitary confinement. We didn't uh, deal with some other issues in that arena uh, that there's still room for. Of course, health care is a very big issue we still have to address. Um, and that gets tied in a little bit, as you referenced, to the, the larger national discussion, because that is front and center in the presidential uh, uh, election. Uh, but that is obviously something that we're going to be looking at. Gustavo Rivera has been having hearings, uh, and we'll continue to do so as we prepare uh, for next year. We did not um, adequately uh, fund uh, education in this state. Uh, those of us, uh, and Robert Jackson has been the leader on this, many of us have, um, those of us who believe that we have been underfunding our public schools for the last couple of decades would like to see uh, that dealt with. And so there's, uh, those are just a sampling of things, but there's no shortage of additional work we have to do. Uh, you're right that we did an incredible amount and cleared uh, the deck of a lot of the things that were to be done, but uh, there's definitely more to, more to be done. Uh, we want to talk a little Queens politics in a moment, um, but one more question on the, on the Albany uh, legislative picture. 
the more public polling that comes out on this issue and the lawsuits that have been filed on it, the, um, the, the law that allows undocumented immigrants access to driver's licenses uh, coming up soon, the enactment, um, has there been any, any sort of shockwaves into the Senate Democratic Conference around maybe we shouldn't have gone so fast on that one, maybe we should have held that off until next year, you know, we did so much and, and the, the public polling shows a lack of support, there's lawsuits being filed by county clerks. Has there been any um, regret on that one? No, certainly not. I think it was an important thing to do on the merits. There is hardly... Uh uh, an argument against it that doesn't involve uh, some form of anti-immigrant sentiment. Uh, this is a situation that would require proper regulation of people who are behind the wheel already, and in many cases uninsured. So to have people properly trained, properly licensed, insured, driving on our streets, as opposed to not having that, uh, is a no-brainer as far as I'm concerned. There's over a dozen states uh, in the country that already do it, including some very red states. Uh, it just unfortunately has gotten caught up in this uh, anti-immigrant uh, fervor uh, debate that President Trump is fueling, uh, and that has made it more controversial than it should be. So, Senator, there's as we come toward the end, unfortunately, of our time together, I wanted to ask about sort of a broader question about uh, your own uh, politics and, and, and evolution. There's been some coverage recently about your background and kind of where you sit in this very progressive moment in the state uh, and how comfortable that is or isn't for you. And I'm curious, you've been in office for, you know, eight plus years now, I think. Uh, that's a time when there's been a lot of change in, in the, the Democratic Party in New York State. Have you evolved? Are you more progressive now than you were? Uh, what do you think the that narrative has been? Well, people like to assign labels to things to, to understand and categorize more easily. I get that. But my positions on the issues have been incredibly consistent. Uh, the complete elimination of cash bail was a bill I introduced four years ago, before uh, uh, the progressive moment uh, of the day uh, has arrived. I was a supporter of driver's licenses for immigrants many years ago. I was one of the original sponsors of the same-sex marriage uh, a bill long before it was enacted in New York. And so my, my politics have always been incredibly progressive. Now, I think what people are getting caught up in is political alliances uh, really more than anything else and was someone uh, a county loyalist an establishment person versus an insurgent person and all that's a lot of um, uh, political gossip that most people in the state don't really care about but to me it comes down to a complete change in this country post 2016 2016 shocked a lot of people nobody thought donald trump was was in a position to win until he won um, and that created a lot of soul-searching across the country and here in New York, and particularly within the Democratic Party. Now, it, it just so happens that Western Queens, which is uh, the part of Queens I'm privileged to represent, uh, happens to be the center of the universe of this discussion, both because we have Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez as our congresswoman, and where Tiffany Caban just did incredibly well in this DA's race. There's a, a lot of uh, things that are happening here that have uh, woken up the residents of this part of New York especially. Um, and so I am certainly aligned with that movement. I believe in it. I think it's time for the Democratic Party to get aggressive. I wrote an op-ed in the Daily News a couple of weeks back uh, that made this point. When we are going into a political battle, as this as 2020 will be, um, in a defensive posture of fear of doing something wrong, let's not take an aggressive position. We might annoy someone in the middle. We might 
piss off a Republican voter. Let's not do this. It's almost a recipe for disaster. I likened it to, for those who are sports fans, people playing a prevent defense, uh, which inevitably leads to defeat. We need to stand for something, and we need to stand for something in a strong and bold way so that the voters understand there's a difference between what Democrats stand for and what Republicans stand for. And if our whole posture and platform is going to be, well, we're not Donald Trump, so you know, don't worry about what we stand for, at least we're not him, that is a recipe for failure in my view. So, um, so uh, yeah, you mentioned in our last moments here, uh, we'll get you out of here on this, but you mentioned Tiffany Caban last night. She conceded in the in the Queens District Attorney primary uh, after a recount and some challenges to affidavit ballots. Uh, you had supported her. What What is her loss here and Melinda Katz's victory? And it's all but certain that Melinda Katz will be the next DA at this point, given what the general election landscape looks like. What does um, that outcome mean for this sort of progressive uh, movement that, that backed Caban but didn't didn't pull it out? Well, movements have victories and defeats, um, but the trajectory is always uh, forward and in the right direction. And so, look, Western Queens is certainly progressive turf uh, right now. I don't think anyone can deny that. Uh, uh, and this was a countywide race and a county that's bigger than many states in this country. Uh, and it was a, a, essentially a draw when you have a race come down to 55 votes at the end of the day. Um, it was basically uh, a draw, and that shows that the power of this movement uh, is vast. Um, and uh, we don't know where it ends up, but it is not something that's contained to one little corner of Queens. It's something that uh, we saw in the anti-IDC primaries in 2018 uh, have influenced as far as Syracuse uh, and, and, all the, and throughout all the boroughs uh, of New York City. Um, so uh, for me, the, the race was one that really uh, made it, uh, shown a spotlight on how strong the progressive movement is. Now, in the last few weeks, we were all hoping for an actual victory, and that didn't come to pass. So there's a little bit of disappointment today as we're here the day after uh, the concession. Uh, but I think with the context and perspective of some time, we'll see that it was a, a very positive step forward uh, in the progressive movement. And, and I think 2020 will be a very interesting year as we continue to figure out what the Democratic Party stands for. And uh, we're likely to see early in 2020 a uh, special election for Queensboro president. So we'll, we'll, be st- we'll stay tuned for that. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk with you, I'm sure, uh, before that. Any, any favored uh, candidate to replace Melinda Katz as we say goodbye? Well, that's, that's really early, Ben. Okay, just uh, checking. I don't know. We don't even know who's in or out of that race yet. I have some friends who are talking about uh, being candidates, but I'll let the field develop a little more before I, I make the pick. All right, very good. State Senator Michael Janaris, thanks for taking some time with us. Thank you, guys. All right, we'll be right back. And you're listening to Max and Murphy here on WBAI 99.5 FM and WBAI.org. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette with Jarrett Murphy of City Limits. We just heard from State Senator Michael Gennaris, Deputy Leader of the Senate Democratic Conference, about a whole bunch of topics. Uh, Jarrett, any, any big takeaways? A lot of interesting stuff on some of the finer policy points. I think that his answer to the question about his evolution was was interesting, and or, or lack thereof, I guess, uh, made a few uh, interesting points there. I think it was cogent and, and fairly candid. And, you know, of course, 
there is this thing where people are are kind of not supposed to evolve because that's seen as a, in an indication of inconsistency or maneuvering, uh, and I've I've never had much patience for that. So I think that you know we are seeing obviously politicians like Joe Biden have been around forever. We, we would certainly hope they evolved during that time, and and you know I don't know if uh, Generis did not cop to that, but I think some politicians probably would. His in, his point about standing for something and the import of that I think does tie back to this Queens DA's race because while Caban obviously fell short by the slimmest of margins, clearly even though the the environment was already going to be pro reform, she had an impact on that race, an impact on the promises Katz made. People positioned themselves relative to her, but the center of that race moved well to the left of what it would have been without her. And that will have some impact, uh, presumably, on the conduct of that office. So I think even when standing for something doesn't get you the electoral win, it obviously can have the impact on the process. And that's something progressives have thought about and talked about for years. Sure. I mean, we saw with with how Bernie Sanders, you know, influenced the, the rest of the discussion in 2016, certainly, and then sort of the post-2016 Democratic conversation, you know, that he uh, influenced greatly. You know, I think you this this question, this would be a great topic for, you know, more of a broad discussion of politics, especially in New York. Um, you know, this question around consistency versus evolution, and is it a bad thing to admit that you've, like, you know, sort of looked at new evidence and changed your mind a bit? You know, people don't want to necessarily see people flipping and flopping all over the, the political map and being overly opportunistic, right? And that's some of the questions that have been raised about Generis is, you know, he was more of a machine guy and then AOC won. And, but, you know, as he points out, he had this cash bail bill quite a few years ago. He was part of the, you know, the Safe Act push, as he indicated. So, you know, it's, it's interesting to sort of, but your political alignments, as he's talking about, Sure. You know, that's that does say a lot. And he, among others, we've seen this with city controller Scott Stringer and a bit with city council speaker Corey Johnson. You know, the shift is post Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been pretty remarkable in terms of some of the calculations that people are making around who they endorse and who they back for certain positions. And next year is going to be a very interesting free for all. I mean, we didn't get to it with him, but, you know, some of his Western Queens territory could be very interesting in terms of challenges to incumbents and things like that. And the governor, you know, has speculated that, uh, you know, Generis has taken certain positions because he doesn't want to have to worry about his own primary, you know, things like that. So uh, we shall see a lot to continue to to dissect there. 